you know, the goal of the librarian and the library has always been, it's that place that you go when you need information. Welcome to another Modern Learners Podcast. This is Lynn Hilt, and I'm joined today by Missy Emler and Bruce Dixon, and our special guest, Heather Lister. Heather is a teacher librarian, instructional technologist, a professional learning specialist and speaker, and senior fellow for Foundry Makerspace here in central Pennsylvania. And we are focusing our conversation on our theme for Modern Learners Community this month, which is modern literacy. Heather has a wealth of information to share with us about how we can think critically about the content we see online and that we read. And she also works to break the stereotype of what a library is and what a librarian could be and what the role of teacher librarians is in our schools today. We talk copyright, we talk ownership of learning and getting hands-on to make ideas stick. And we're glad you're here and we hope you enjoy the next hour with Modern Learners and Heather. Heather was and I guess will always be a school librarian um, and she's ventured into the professional learning space. She worked for Mackin Professional Learning and I'll let her share all the things that she uh, learned and and taught and worked with in that space and she's currently working in the makerspace arena as a senior fellow for Foundry Makerspace, which is in Harrisburg area as well. So the reason I invited Heather tonight is because of our MLC September theme. This month, we have been looking at modern literacy, what that means for school leaders, for teachers, and for students. We've talked about everything from media literacy and learning in an age of information abundance to best practices for literacy instruction. Reading instruction had a really good conversation about that. Um, Digital literacies, and today I just posted something about Banned Books Week, if you haven't been in to read today, um, as that is going on this week. So I invite Heather knowing that she has a really strong foundation in literacy and leadership and can also help give us some um, insights into modern day um, making and what that means. And I, I had shared with her kind of behind the scenes before tonight's conversation that I have not really been in the maker scene in schools, education-wise. I feel like, personally, I've done a lot of making <laughs> in my life uh, in different craft arenas. Uh, and I know that making is something that's been a- around for a really long time. And we've certainly talked with a lot of people who do have expertise in this area, people like Gary Seeger. So to me, I'm really curious about how that fits into learning today, uh, modern literacies, and why making is such an important part of that. One of the things that I love about Heather's bio that she lists on her blog is that she is on a mission to abolish the stereotype of libraries and librarians. And I want to hear all about what that means <laughs> in her in her eyes, too. So welcome so much, Heather. Well, um I guess a couple things. So I came into the profession um, really because of my interest in tech. Um, So there are a lot of people and you still get this comment that, oh, I I love reading books. I would love to be a librarian. Um, They just put those hand in hand. And I I don't want to say that I don't love reading. Of course I love reading, but that's not, I went into the profession because 
there was a lot of things that I loved and I knew I wanted to be a teacher and really I just couldn't pick what area I wanted to tie myself down to. I actually started as a, uh, a math major, did end up getting my math cert, but I knew I never wanted to do that. So something that I noticed right away as soon as I started teaching is that people will associate the role of the librarian to what their librarian was when they went through school. So however they experienced their school library, however they experienced their relationship with their school librarian, that's how they basically measure you up. And that can be a good thing and that can be a bad thing. And believe it or not, it, there were situations where I, I felt that the practices that I was doing in my school library were very innovative and very forward thinking. And, um, but because there was that subset of teachers that had their idea of what a library should be, you know, that quiet space where kids and they go to read, they check out books and your job is to keep things orderly and order materials that in their mind actually wasn't doing my job <laughs> um, because that's what their idea of what a librarian is. So where I say that I'm on this mission to abolish the stereotypical librarian is I am still very, and even with making, which I'll touch upon later, but you know, the goal of the librarian and the library has always been, it's that place that you go when you need information. So whether it was back when it was just books and uh, we didn't have rich libraries at our homes, we didn't have rich classroom libraries, you went to the library, the public or the school library. And then as we evolved into tech, it became that place for computers. And it, I would still say that's still a large part of public libraries and school libraries where you don't have mainstream access to computers. I mean, you know, I work from home now, so I run to the library all the time just to use the printer. It's that, that place where you can go when you don't have those technologies available at home. And then now we're seeing the same thing with, with maker spaces is that as we're really encouraging these skills of creating things, again, you know, you've heard that analogy of creators versus consumers of information, just like with tech, instead of just reading a bunch of information online, let's contribute to the world. Same thing translates with making. And then the role of the librarian is, is still the same, just in different contexts that before when it was print books, we were doing reader's advisory, recommending books to kids, acting as that reference librarian for kids doing research in the digital space. You know, the forums that I follow for school and public libraries, now the big push is having librarians train themselves on wearables because we're, and when I mean wearables, you know, your Apple Watch, your Fitbit, because that's one way that librarians are assisting their users in the tech that they use at home. And then also the, the whole gamut of safety and privacy things that come along with that. And then, like I said, that transfers again to making that, that weird job is, we might not necessarily be the expert in it, but we know the resources. We know that these are the questions that we're going to be receiving. And then we know the, the resources and the outlets to give, to give those, those answers to. And I'd say for sure the biggest change that we've seen in schools particularly is this idea that the librarian stays in the library. They have this office and they stay back there and they come out when they're requested. When now we have a lot of um, even states that have adopted the term teacher librarian 
or um, library media specialist, really to drive home this idea that the librarian is an instructional partner, an instructional coach. We're not just, okay, you do the content stuff and I'll teach kids how not to plagiarize, but truly being there from the beginning of the lesson and planning it and delivering it, building assessments together, truly that instructional partner that's coming along for the entire, whether it's a unit or a mini lesson or whatever it is. But that's been the, the big shift and that's what I really want to, I want people to recognize the power that we are uh, many states, Pennsylvania is not, but many states require you to have five years of teaching experience and then a master's degree in library science. Almost all of us have classroom experience. And then, you know, like you said, I just because of the, the role and needing so much of that tech background, I went in and then I got my master's in instructional tech. And then because of the leadership, I ended up getting my principal cert as well. So most of us are coming to the table with we know a lot more than the Dewey Decimal System, basically. The bad part about, uh, I don't wanna say the bad part, but many librarians are not the, how do I say this? We're not good at sharing our story. And so because of that, I'm sure many of you, if not at your own schools, but have read and seen how many library positions are being eliminated because their value is not recognized. And a part of that is because we, as a profession, did not set the narrative for what we do for schools proactively enough. So that's why I'm that was one of the things I was going to ask you um, that I've seen, especially in this area or in talking with administrative teams is, you know what, we, we don't need one particular space for research anymore. It's the abundance of information uh, we can access anytime, anywhere. We don't need to send kids to the library or they don't necessarily need the library. And I think it goes back to the point that you made earlier is that they're thinking about the library as the traditional space that they maybe experienced when they were students or how it's always been in their schools. So that whole trend, and I know it was very political in your area. It might have even been the district where you live um, in terms of getting rid of the librarian and even in the district where I used to work they eliminated a position that they did not refill and just ended up putting people in the space for certain periods of the day so kids could go in and do book checkout and it's kind of like like you're saying this is not the best um, these are not the best points of what a library can offer and so how do you then tell your story in a way that encourages other teacher librarians to do the same and to really advocate for what it is that they can do in this modern context that sure, there's information everywhere. Kids are walking around with phones that are more powerful than their desktop computers and they can get the information they need. So where does your power lie in that um, specialist arena? Well, I will say that, um, you know, this isn't necessarily a good thing, but fortunately, because of everything that's happening, and not just in the K-12 world, but just in society with fake news, and uh, I mean, there's just, there's so much out there and concern about um, trustworthiness, and that I think because of that, that has 
made this idea of evaluating sources and really how we analyze text, how we're sharing content, how we're using other people's content um, in terms of intellectual property. I think because a lot of those issues have been brought to the forefront of news, it has helped us in justifying our role. It has really given us the platform to say, well, these, this is, again, kind of goes back to why we're needed in schools, because these are the skills that we're teaching kids. Um, so really trying to drive home that it, it is a societal thing. We really kind of try to paint this picture that the amount of librarians in schools and the amount of direct instruction that is being provided around these topics of media literacy, news literacy, information literacy has decreased. Now we're seeing a huge increase in the issues surrounding news literacy, fake news, bias, um, clickbait things that are that are being shared, especially on social media. And you know what's happening because we don't have those skills is having is having a pretty broad impact. Let me ask you this: How do you feel most, just generally speaking, most classroom teachers are prepared, or are they to? teach the types of skills or facilitate learning around the skills that you were just talking about, the identifying fake news, evaluating sources. How, how well do you think teachers come out of their prep programs, for example, ready to help kids evaluate information? I feel, well, I do feel that it's extremely limited, if, if at all. Um, and I feel that the preparation that they have was more or less the instruction that they received while they were going through college or where they were going through high school. Um, but it wasn't necessarily a part of their, this is how you teach this. It was more delivered to them in, as you're doing your master's thesis, this is how you do citations. This is how you determine a reliable source. But again, not really in how do you teach that to kids. I also think too, the, the limitation in that is and this is a good thing though, is that it's contextualized for their subject area. So my husband's a social studies teacher. His knowledge of information literacy is really more or less around this idea of primary, secondary, tertiary sources rather than where maybe my perspective from a librarian is coming from. And again, it still doesn't necessarily hit on that best teaching strategies for equipping kids to, to have those conversations. The other thing too is, again, because a lot of these are in this sort of subject area context is where we're seeing a lot of this, you know, fake news, digital literacy component isn't necessarily within the walls of the classroom. You know, it's happening in kids' private lives, in their personal lives, on social media. And that is something that teachers, I think, collectively as a whole, aren't really pre prepared to, to answer that. And if we are, it's usually through the lens of a digital citizenship. This is something, you know, that, that I, I want to talk about is there's these really kind of growing two different approaches to media literacy in terms of do we shield kids? Do we teach kids how to shield themselves? Or is it more of like this empowerment approach? So yeah, that's what I would say that, you know, one of the things that I felt that I did a lot of in my role as a school librarian was that, yes, the direct instruction with the kids, but also the coaching. A lot of the things that I did, and I would hope that many school librarians are doing this, 
is that staff development around these topics as well, because it's as, it's as important for the teachers as it is for the students. It, what you're seeing on the news in terms of algorithms that are determining, determining what you're seeing, that's something that it, it probably wasn't discussed in teacher prep programs because it wasn't really an issue during that time. So the emphasis on professional development, professional learning opportunities is, I think, really important, even around things like copyright. And I know that that's something that we did not utilize our library specialists enough in our district to help the rest of our staff learn just even copyright 101. And your point about the two different ways of approaching media literacy, I think for a long time we approached it from a punitive standpoint where we just continue to warn kids, you can't plagiarize, it's against the law, you'll get kicked out of school. And we focused yeah. on that and we did not focus on the rights of the creator and building that up and making sure that they valued that so that they would you know, internalize that need to of course uh, cite their sources and treat other people's property, intellectual property with respect. There, there's not enough information shared with teachers about what to do in, you know, with the, this abundance of information and how to best use it in their classrooms and how students best can use it. The whole idea of fair use is something I think that just blows people's minds when they <laughs> first hear about it. And I just try to learn as much as I can about that as, as tricky a subject as it can be. The gray areas that are there just to help through some of the workshops that I do from the technology side, um, just helping them understand there are, there are ways that you can learn more about this and there are things that you can do to be proactive to make sure our students are valuing the time they spend creating and taking ownership for their own work. Yeah, and I love that, you know, that, that idea that framing all of these issues or topics from the lens of the creator, um, I found so much more success in that rather than saying, don't use this person's picture, don't use this person's music because you'll go to jail, because you'll get fined, because you won't get into college. By really celebrating the creative work that our kids are creating. And when I say creative work, I'm not just talking about art, you know, I'm talking about their papers that they're submitting, I'm talking about the sketches that they're doing, I'm talking about the things that they're building in the makerspace. You know, this idea that this is somebody's potentially somebody's livelihood, and simply by ripping it off of the internet and posting it on their page, we're essentially robbing them of what would be money to feed and sustain their families. And our, our kids, you know, they develop pride in their work. And so it, it's very empowering for a kid, you know, um, when we go through the copyright, you know, learning about copyright law and how you don't necessarily need to file for copyright, that copyright is automatic as long as it's in a fixed tangible form, that the idea that they are now the creator of a copyright protected work, it, it's very empowering for our kids. And they take like much more ownership, which I loved because we're trying to get our kids to take ownership and feel, you know, not feel like they're just checking off a checkbox or doing something to pass the grade. Like we want these learning experiences to be meaningful anyway. So it was, you know, kind of killing multiple birds with one stone. And, and what's really cool is when you see kids build upon other kids work which is how society flourishes, you know, that we're always building upon something else. And what I think now is, what I'd love to see is as we're seeing more and more schools using digital portfolios is to really see like 
kids can be building off of their own work as they learn more, as they acquire additional skills, as they, as they have access to new resources, and that K-12 is really just a constant iteration. So I, I'm excited about that, but I do, I think that that, that context and I'd like to push that and celebrate that because very often the library is looked as the copyright police. You know, the teacher comes down, checks out this movie from the library and closes their door, you know, but, but by framing us and, and really trying to celebrate this idea of, no, fair use was actually created to support the use of creative works, obviously within reason. And you're right, it's a gray area and it's complicated, but I love it. I don't know. It kind of makes me feel like a little bit of a lawyer, but it's like a chance, you know, just to, I don't know. Um, but it really makes you think about it. But I love that. Once my teachers realized that I was not that copyright police, that I was going to help them find things and answer that question for them, um, because it is overwhelming. It's overwhelming. And in fact, a lot of the resources out there can be downright scary, make you thinking like if you make the wrong decision that you're going to get like your teacher's license revoked and have this huge fine. And so again, just kind of being looked at as that resource and that ally, whether it's digital print or whatever, or if it's students. Hi, so we hope you're enjoying this conversation with Heather. This podcast is brought to you by the Modern Learners community. And of course, as the community manager, I could tell you all of the great things about our learning common, that it is a space filled with relevant curated content, and it's a place where you can learn transparently with others who support you through rich dialogue. But why not listen to one of our members talk about his experiences? Here's Gareth. There's the community aspect of it as well, and the community is unparalleled, as far as I know, online, uh, open to discussion um, in deep ways that you don't quite get on Twitter or on just Facebook. And those deep discussions always produce some kind of meaningful learning for me that, again, I'm taking back to my administration. So we hope you'll visit modernlearners.com MLC and become part of our community of global educational leaders who want to fully reimagine schools for today's connected learners. And we're looking forward to creating a whole new experience of school with you. And now back to our discussion with Heather. Heather, I have a question that I wanna, will in a sense take you back to the algorithm conversation. And I like the idea of framing the message from the creator and building up the creator as the purpose of copyright and um, celebrating that work. But I think it's interesting um, to talk about the algorithm and its impact on literacy and fake news. And I'm I'm wondering if you've done any thinking about the, the extent to which the algorithm is now serving as the censoring mechanism. You know, is, is the algorithm now what's censoring what students read? without them really knowing. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I would say too, it is so not just students. It is, um, if you've, there's a great TED talk and there's an accompanying book uh, called The Filter Bubble. It's, I forget what the long title is, but it's about the filter bubble and essentially how, because these algorithms that were put in place to make our life easier by giving us tailored news and, you know, on social media, putting the, the profiles that we typically engage with most at the top. But what's happening is we are 
becoming trapped in this filter bubble. And so, especially when it comes to hot topics like politics, we are using social media as a news source, but what is happening is we're only seeing one side of the news source because the algorithm is tailoring what we're seeing based on what we engage with. So, you know, the, the other question that I get asked then is, is knowing that there is this algorithm and filter bubble out there is, is what do you do? How do you, I mean, how can you combat that? How can you change that? Obviously we can't change you know, Facebook and Google's algorithm. Long story short is I really think the best way to combat this filter bubble issue is for kids to understand that there is a filter bubble. I think the first step is having this awareness that what you're seeing is not the whole story and going into it knowing that there is, this is one perspective. I do think society is starting to realize and get kind of pushed back on this idea that um, they kind of feel duped that they're they're only seeing certain I mean I'm sure you guys have all seen the Facebook post that was going around that's Facebook has a new algorithm that I'm only seeing 25 of my friends posts and in order for you to see mine you need to copy and paste this and um, now, if you look on Snopes, that wasn't accurate. However, um, people, tons of people were sharing that because they wanted to combat the issue, basically. I mean, they weren't just going to accept that they were only seeing 25 people's comments. There are some tools, like most search engines and Facebook as well, will you can turn off tailored ads, but that kind of goes back to this idea of how we're teaching media literacy. We can spend a ton of time investing into teaching kids, this is how you change the settings on Google, this is how you change the settings on Twitter, this is how you change the setting on, on Facebook. And, and I think that has merit, but I think there's just gonna be another thing the next day. Um, so I think it, it's, it's really more or less helping kids understand that we really can't ever accept anything for face value. Um, always just kind of have this healthy skepticism for, for what they're reading. And, and I, 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 again, I, everything has two sides of the story. So just going into it with that awareness, not only can it help with this whole filter bubble issue, but I really think it can help make a more empathetic society. Yeah. So I want to just dig into that a little bit more from the perspective of we need to encourage learners to look at things from multiple perspectives and the point of view of any piece of you know text or media impacts what somebody is seeing or interpreting or inferring so it's all of those reading skills those thinking skills that go into understanding what we're consuming both as a, a consumer of media and, and text, but also as a consumer in like, you know, of goods, right? So we have to really be able to figure out when we're consuming liter media, it's almost like um, spending attention, right? We're, we have to put our time where it actually is um, a worthy spend of that. So essentially with this multimedia world and the need to be able to wade through fake news, we're really talking about the currency of attention. And I think that we 
we give up a lot of attention in unworthy spaces. And so I think that that's a way for, for us to help learners figure out how to spend their time with media and text. Yeah, no, for absolutely. I, it, you know, that, that it gets me thinking about a conversation that I was having in that we've had this discussion before and I'm sure you've all engaged in, in some sort of discussion similar to this in the advantages and disadvantages to the internet. You know, it's, it's wonderful that anybody can post something on the internet, but you know, as we're having this conversation about fake news, we're also starting to see the implications that anybody can post something to the internet. So it's like whenever I see a new graphic design tool come out, it's awesome, but I'm also thinking now it's making these illegitimate, essentially spam websites, giving them the tools to create something that gives the appearance of something incredibly trustworthy and established. Um, and so while we both as librarians and anybody who taught, you know, website evaluation is we really used to rely on this checklist of looking at the date, looking at the author, looking at the news source that came from. And, and basically what, what's happening now is the packaging has really made those checklists really not as reliable as they were before. And so the, the analogy, you know, that was given is if you're out in the woods and you see this a bunch of bushes with berries you're probably not going to just run up and start eating them you're going to kind of say like i, I don't know i don't recognize that you're kind of going through these questions in your head but if you would go to a grocery store and see berries on a shelf in those plastic containers you would not hesitate i mean you would you would buy them. And, and really, it's just because of, of this packaging that it has really made us kind of let our guard down. Or the exa other example was like, if somebody would give you a bag of pills in like a Ziploc bag <laughs> and say like, here, these are for weight loss, you would probably say like, I, I, I'm not really sure I think I'm going to pass on that. That's kind of creepy. But yet you look online and there are so many pills that are for sale that have these labels that look very, very much like labels of legitimate and reputable companies. And so, but, but the only thing that's changing is the packaging. Um, so, so the obstacle here is how do we teach kids and adults to look beyond the packaging? And it's interesting that you mentioned the investment of time because and I hate blaming time on everything. I feel like as a teacher, I have blamed everything that I can't accomplish on time. But really, it it takes a big investment to truly understand and really evaluate and analyze and synthesize a single source. Um, and if it is something that you're just doing for pleasure, it's like, is it worth it? But what we have to recognize is that by sharing it, you know, even if it's one of those simple, silly posts that are talking about the 25 Facebook followers, we have to realize like what's happening when we share something and, and the implications of our actions just by sharing something. There's a statistic that fake news and false information is shared six times faster than accurate information. And they claim that the reason for this is because of the emotion that's attached to it. And usually, you know, you're reading a headline of something and you're upset, you hit share, 
and then it just keeps getting shared and shared and shared as opposed to, you know, something that's not a hot topic or isn't pushing your buttons. Um, it's more likely to just get slipped under the radar. I want to, I want to talk a little bit too about how learning about the algorithm and the, and being able to recognize the packaging and that whole concept and how they work together. I think there's the flip side of that to learning too. And if we're building the learners up to be creators and to understand um, and to celebrate the creators, they also have to understand the challenges of being a creator. Uh, so if, it, when they decide they're ready to publish something and to share something out, they have to understand that just because they posted on Facebook does not mean it goes anywhere. Um, and really getting to the point of what what makes something valuable and um, shareable, et cetera, if you want your ideas to spread. And so I think as much as it is important for them to learn it as consumers, the opposite side of um, from the creator lens, it's just as important to learn it from there too. Um, and so I wonder how much do you, time do you think we spend um, helping learners understand it from that perspective as well, from the creator's perspective. Yeah, I would say um, in terms of the profession, we're certainly in the transition, very much like what Lynn was talking about earlier in terms of just teaching copyright. We, you know, we had the, the uh, group of librarians that were very much the copyright police, don't do this, 10% of this, blah, 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 blah. Now slowly switching into this idea of you can use this here. Let me help you find this. This is what would make a good remix or contribution to whatever you're building. In terms of this fake news and publishing content, I think that there are there are definitely a, a huge group of librarians that are out there that that are doing this. I don't want to be naive and think that collectively as a profession we're all doing that, but we talk like I know myself is we use the examples of kind of like Kickstarter and that there have been so many customers essentially that are purchasing things on Kickstarter that basically enough people have been scammed and um, left frustrated because of Kickstarter that they're losing confidence in Kickstarter. So what would you need to do as an entrepreneur to get people to believe in your product? And so even just talking about those sites that we do trust, what, why do we trust them? What are the characteristics of it? And we shouldn't have to click five different times to see who the author is. We shouldn't have to dig to find a work cited. We shouldn't be seeing personal blogs that are credited. We should see that they're acknowledging competing views. So it's kind of like, okay, if these are the things that we as readers are looking for, then those are the things that we should be expecting ourselves to produce as writers. But what I, what I think too is, is it's, it's one of those things that I feel like there's so much more power and a lot more opportunities for that to stick if, if kids are making those discoveries on their own. It can be very easy for teachers to just give kids a checklist and say, this is what you need to do in order for it to be a good, accepted news, you know, piece of news or media in today's society. But I mean, it's funny because we're talking about the healthy skepticism is why should our kids trust us? So this book here, Lies My Teacher Told Me, if you've ever read it or have a chance to check it out or even just understanding like the premise of it is basically that 
even us as educators, we have to be aware of our own bias um, and like the resources that we're using potentially have bias, including our textbook, um, just in terms of leaving certain components of history out because it paints America in a different light. And, and so it's like we're, we're encouraging our kids to be skeptics, but yet um, we, there's a fine line because we don't want kids to be like, I don't believe you. I don't believe that I need that to get into college. So there's a, we have to establish ourselves as credible. People just shouldn't accept that because we're standing at the front of the room. But I, I think that kids need to experience that for themselves. I taught middle school a lot. When my kids got duped, they would get angry about it. So we did a lot of lessons where I would give them websites that I knew were inaccurate. And when they would realize that it was inaccurate, they were kind of embarrassed and angry that they could be duped so easily. But because they experienced that, as opposed to me just telling them, be on the look for this, be on the look for that, I just felt like it was a much more engaging process. And yes, I would say that the same thing certainly translates in terms of what they're sharing and creating. Well, I would love to transition into your other realm of expertise a bit, since I, I do believe that we're seeing, as you mentioned at the start, how libraries in many school spaces are emerging as the, the spaces for making. And I know a number of uh, teacher librarians who are assuming the role of kind of leading the initiatives in the, in the makerspace realm for their schools or for their, um, for their districts. And talk to me about how that, you know, how that happened. How did that connection emerge? And um, what is your role now in your, your fellow ship that you're working in and how do you support teachers and, and learners in that? Yeah, so the way I, I would really say my, my path into making kind of happened, it, I don't know, it really wasn't planned that way. It actually was an interesting story. I had started my position at Hershey. I was librarian at Hershey Middle School and one of the seventh graders was running for class president and his one of his campaign essentially his pillars of his campaign was if he was class president he was going to build a lego wall a lego wall and i at the time i thought he meant like like a like truly a wall dividing something with legos i mean it was seventh grade so there i you know bad things were happening in the world but that's what they wanted to focus on mm-hmm. um so uh, when he won, he he came up to me and he actually showed me this blog post of this teacher librarian who had created this this maker corner, and it was really that one. It really started from the kids, but I don't think he even knew what he was asking for. So that sort of prompted this research into what in the world a makerspace was. I had went to ISTE that following summer and like from one ISTE to the next, it was like night and day in terms of nobody was talking about making to every single person was talking about making. Anyway, I just started doing research and it it just, it fit really well. I was looking for something where we had had a librarian who had been in that role for her entire career and the library was beautiful and very well maintained, but you had a bunch of regulars 
basically. You had the kids that absolutely loved reading. They came in, they got their book recommendations, and they left. And I was used to a fixed schedule. And in library world, we have a fixed schedule, which means we're kind of part of the rotation. We see kids on a regular basis or a flexible schedule. And so I went from this fixed schedule of having, you know, maybe 200 kids in the library in a day to maybe 15. And it was like, shocker for me and so maybe it wasn't viewed as an issue but for me I'm like we got to get more kids in here so that's what started this idea of making and it really just fit and it kind of goes back to this idea of what I talked about what the role of a library is so in connecting with this whole idea of literacy is something that we get that I get asked a lot by fellow librarians is this fear that if they start a maker space in their library that it will take away from their literacy efforts I, I try to help them understand that making is a way to take your literacy practices and elevate them. There is very strong research, and you said that you had um, Gary on, of what, and, and even just, you know, the saying that we have, you, you remember what you write down more, the power of doing something with your hands truly helps us encode things in our memory. That is an issue that all teachers want. We are tired of repeating information from year to year to year and having that summer slide and spending the first semester of every year reviewing what was done last year. By getting kids more engaged in doing things with their hands, we know they're going to remember it. That's not new. We can call it making, but Piaget, Papert, Montessori, there are, uh, we all studied those in school. Um, that's not a new learning theory. And then that also that idea that the library has always been that place where if you want to know more, you can go to the library to find that answer. And so we as an educational system are very, we like our pacing guides, we like our curriculum maps, but what we have to recognize is that we are limiting kids with those pacing guides. I cannot tell you how many times I as an educator, and I didn't really realize what I was doing at the time, but I would say, okay, we're gonna take one more comment and then we gotta move on. Or I'm sorry, but I gotta stop you. We gotta keep going, we gotta move on. And what we're doing in that moment is we're essentially telling kids, I'm going to tell you what's important right now. And what you're interested in and what you think is important in this moment is not. You know, maybe it's we're talking about simple circuits and you have kids that are just freaking out because they're lighting up this light bulb, but parallel circuits and series circuits doesn't come till next grade. So we're effectively telling this kid, just suppress that interest right now because that doesn't come until next year. For me, the makerspace was that answer. Our school also was we, as a district, had recognized this push for computer science, but partly because of the state and partly because of our, our in district systems is there was no place where that was being taught. So my library, in keeping with what the library has always been, was kind of answering that hole, that need that the district and the students had demonstrated in terms of computer science and robotics. So that was kind of our, one of our focus areas in our makerspace. The last thing I would say in terms of connecting that with literacy is there is, uh, her name's Angela Stockman, and she has um, written two books, one called Make Writing, and she has a second one that's a, essentially a revamped version of it, but it's really, it's turning a writer's workshop into a maker's workshop. Hacking the writer's workshop. 
Is that the, okay. All right. Is that the second one? Um, and I just, I love her idea of the, the maker process, the design process. It very well translates into the research process, the writing process, the scientific method. There are so many connections. And then to the way that I have used it is think about Google slides. Google slides is in nobody's curriculum. Every content area though, has the opportunity to use that with their students for them to demonstrate mastery of something. So I don't know, you're in science class doing a public service announcement on clean energy. Students can use Google Slides to explain their understanding of an option solution for clean energy. Making is very similar to that approach with tech. It's just another option. If we want, we can have kids create a augmented reality experience. We can have kids create a diorama with something simple like Legos. It's just another tool for them to take that content knowledge and demonstrate it. But what I would argue is because they're getting the haptic feedback, because they're doing things with their hands, because they're having that failure and that kind of struggle, they're learning more. Um, so that's why I'm kind of that, I'm that big advocate for this type of learning because if, if it's positioned correctly, it can really take the learning, the standards, that content subject specific matter that we're focused on and elevate it. So I guess in, in you know, keeping with that, my role now is, um, so the foundry is, it's a unique makerspace. The makerspace itself is very small and it's located out of a co-working space. So it's, public, not public. It's if you're a member of the co-working space, you have access to it. But the the makerspace itself was designed um, primarily, it's, it's, its goal is we um, support teachers in STEAM through project-based learning. My role is essentially the way I explain it is I'm like a STEM coach. I'm a maker coach. So I will go in and I will help teachers. I am placed at two middle schools in the Harrisburg City School District. And we identify, we, we develop really high quality project-based learning. And we do a lot of staff development in terms of this is a great activity, but it's not, pro, it's not project-based learning. It's not that it's not great, but we really try and focus on those project-based learning, creating good driving questions, authentic assessments. We do program assessments as well. And then what, what we're kind of doing, I'm doing as a senior fellow, is really overseeing this pathway and how do we measure whether kids are growing in the area of science, tech, engineering from K to 12, and how do we know that? How, and we're specifically looking at the four C's and how they're growing in creativity in the science discipline, in creativity in the tech discipline. I love what we do. And if you're familiar with Harrisburg School District, it's, there are many, many obstacles in Harrisburg School District, but I, I think it just makes it that much more rewarding. Um, and it makes us as a group, as the foundry, feel like that's, it's a model that can be replicated and that's the other kind of part of my role is we're we're growing um, we're partnering with with additional schools we'll be onboarding additional uh, school districts next year um, and I'm unique because I'm actually the only educator everybody else is industry prof industry professionals so we have a um, uh, someone who was in urban development in Philadelphia. We have a former tech professor from MIT we have a welder so bringing in this idea of 
we really also want kids to see themselves in these disciplines. It's not just a bunch of, uh, sorry, but like nerdy white guys in the tech industry, that there are females in the tech industry, that there are African-Americans in engineering. So that's kind of a another thing that we try to keep in mind as we're placing people in schools. And then we also really focus on the community aspect. For every project that we do in a school, there's a community coach. Um, and when I say community coach, if we're doing a, a project on tiny homes, if you're familiar with the tiny homes, we have someone from the city commission um, on development come in and talk about the laws and the development regulations that there are. And, you know, because the, in the kids' minds, they're like, well, we should have a tiny home community here in, in, in Harrisburg because these are all the good things. Well, it's important for them to hear from someone. I'm not the enemy. This, these are the laws. And, and again, it's not somewhere of just talking. It's, it's they're there. They're doing the project with the kids. They're getting excited about it too. So just to bridge that. Um, school to community partnership as well. So that's what I do now. Um, and then obviously my, I will always, you, you said in the beginning, I'll always be a school librarian. Um, so I still, I'm, I'm the ISTE school librarians um, network. It's not the school librarians, it's actually all librarians, president-elect. And so, you know, my role is just, it's both a little bit of advocacy. Um, a lot of it is the connection, the intersection between tech's role in the library. So, so that's that's my life now. It's exciting. I had one which is a little bit obtuse, Heather, but it's just something of late that's come up, and I, I I would think probably only so relevant for kids at a later age. But I'm intrigued on a new phrase that seems to be used when we're looking at sources, and it's certainly being used more frequently. And dare I say, it's certainly being used more frequently in regard to uh, reports from your um, capital. Um, and it's that phrase that's now used when journalism, journalists say such and such, they have a quote, according to a source that could not be named at this point, or according to a reliable source whose job is in jeopardy or something. And I'm, it's just come in, I think, in most recent times. In fact, it's because I read an article this morning, it was actually a local article about local politics, and our politics is just as absurd as yours, not quite. And I'm just wondering what your sense about that is, and how do you think it, how do you discuss that with students uh, and teachers and dealing with the uh, veracity of, of such sources? That's a, that's definitely a great question. And um, it's, I, I don't want to say it's unfortunate, but it's a conversation that that's been happening a lot um, because of exactly what you said. There are basically one source that is driving the entire article or the entire argument yet we have no verification on that person. And it, it's, a, it's a very, very interesting dilemma because when you think about the principles of journalism in terms of disclosing their sources, you know, something that, that even in right now in terms of the um, New York Times, or was it the New York Times or was it the Washington Post about the... Uh, an insider in Trump's close to Trump, and I, I can't remember which news source, but then it opens this whole idea of if the administration were to demand revealing of that source, how does that affect your First Amendment rights? 
I mean, it, it gets into a whole constitutional discussion. How I would say it connects to this is I don't think that we should be dumbing down that discussion with kids. Yes, you know, getting into the depths of First Amendment and restricting speech. And if you've seen the Wolf of Wall Street, uh, no, not the Wolf of Wall Street. No, not that. The Post. The Post. That's the one I'm talking about. Yeah, it's fascinating. But I think that it's important. Again, it's it's kind of going back to this idea that I think we have to get away from the checklists. I think that we as teachers collectively have to accept that there are some things that are gray areas. And I know we love our checklists. We love our boxes. But like fair use, it's not a checklist. It's not black and white. This is something, it's not a checklist. It's not black and white. And so for every situation that comes up, for every article, for every resource that we want to use in something, we have to take it case by case. What I would say in terms of if that is a source, that I guess having that question in terms of, okay, except, you know, you can choose to read this or use this, but you have to acknowledge that if your entire argument is based off of this person's article, who was then based off of someone who refuses to reveal themselves, in a sense, how does that reflect upon you as the writer? I don't think, I don't know if we as teachers should make that decision for them. And, and again, that goes back to this, just this adapting, this, this constant changing of, of media. I would hate to be in a situation where we are teaching kids some checklist, and then by the time they graduate, that checklist does not work at all for evaluation, where if we're teaching them these, how to critically analyze and synthesize these questions, really giving them the questions to ask. We can't give them the answers, but we can give them the questions to ask, that I think that's going to make more of a, a, a lasting, I, 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 don't, I don't know if I really answered your question, but what I would say that I think I think our, we have to have those conversations with our kids. And I think that's a great classroom discussion. I mean, and, you know, even if that example is too high level for our kids, compare it to something like John said that somebody said that there was a fight in the bathroom, but that person doesn't want to say it. I mean, there are so many ways that we can use that same scenario, but mirror it to a life experience that your learners would be developmentally, you know, related to, whether it's elementary or middle school, they'll be able to understand that and translate that um, and also understand, you know, they're, they're not blind. Yes, they're on Snapchat and they might be on different social medias than we are, but they're not ignorant to the world and the news that we as adults are experiencing. And I think that by closeting them from that or assuming that they want to be closeted, we're, we're kind of adding to the problem. Hmm. Um, so that's just, that's my, that would be my opinion on that. Thanks. Well, we really appreciate your time with us. This added greatly to our topic for the month. So thank you very, very much. If you want to learn more about Heather and the types of work that she's doing, you can visit her blog, which is um, heatherlister.com and also follow her on Twitter, which is Heather M. Lister. (laughs) And I'll put the links to that too in our post. So thanks Heather for joining us and for helping us learn more tonight. Thank you. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. It's a pleasure. The theme music for this podcast was provided by Scott Holmes, titled Make Your Dream Reality, available through the Free Music Archive. 
Thanks again for listening, and we hope to see you inside Modern Learners community. Visit modernlearners.com slash MLC to join us today.